You're listening to Curators of Culture with Tina Ziegler, a podcast brought to you by Monica Culture and supported by the Monica Foundation. Online, on smart speakers and on Listen Again, this is Food FM. Welcome to Curators of Culture by Monica Culture, a podcast featuring some of today's leading curators for the urban and new contemporary art movement. This podcast is supported by Monica Foundation. Today, we are joined by a leading figure within the urban art movement, Ms. Yasha Young. Since 2001, Yasha has been deeply involved in the international art scene as a curator, innovator, project developer, and high-profile collections manager. You might know her for her recent work as the founder, concept creator, and executive creative director of the amazing Urban Nation Museum. Berlin's first museum of urban contemporary art and a unique artistic project on a global scale, among many other world-leading projects she has led. She most recently has created the entrance hall for the Humboldt Forum in Berlin, Germany's own version of the Louvre. Her visionary work focuses on developing, promoting, collecting, and supporting urban contemporary art in all of its facets worldwide. We are so honored to have her join us. I'm so excited to speak to you, Yasha. It's great to have you. Welcome. Thank you so much. What an introduction. I'm humbled. Thank you. (laughs) Well, it's true. It's hard to keep up with you. I'm constantly trying to figure out where you are in the world. (laughs) Where are you in the world right now, Yasha? Myself. Yeah. Where am I in the world? Where am I in the world? At the moment, uh, I'm in New York City, where I have pretty much spent most of the uh, pandemic months and have only traveled twice to Berlin and once to London, but I travel extensively at the moment inside the United States. Yeah, and how has it been in New York during lockdown? Have you been uh, you know, inspired in your apartment, surrounded by all of the art that I'm sure you have in your collection? And what have you been doing to stay busy? <laughs> well, I actually um, graduated from Harvard during that year and As luck had it, it was uh, pretty fortuitous for me um, to have that year with less travel and more time at my home. And it sounds really weird, I know, but for me, it actually worked out well because I could finish my study almost a year early because I could focus on taking many more classes and dedicated my entire days to just uh, writing, writing my papers, my thesis and getting done with my Harvard experience. What did you study at Harvard? Uh, museology. I was uh, in a research program for the museum for the 21st century. And so I focused on museology and new and, you know, forced trends um, for the museum of the 21st century. What what was going to happen? What... Uh, what did the pandemic do to all of us? What, how this was going to change the way we present work, the way we curate work, the way we work with our audience. And um, I teach myself at the Pop Academy University in Mannheim. So for me, it was vital to connect with other um, people in the academic realm and see what are they researching and what can we actually do to help yeah, survive, I want to say as cultural institutions, this uh, very challenging time. Wow. Wow. Did you find it kind of, you know, working with the other students within Harvard and learning it? um, Did you find your perspective was kind of very different from your background? Or did you feel like you shared a lot of similarities with other people studying um, the same field? Um, All of those people in there are professionals. So um, they're already 
you know, leaders in their own field, which is a very special study program. So um, it was quite a pleasure and really uh, wonderful to dive into uh, deep thinking and think tanking with a lot of, you know, museum directors, um, curators, but also registrars and hospitality managers from large museums. There are people there from the Smithsonian, there's people there from the MoMA, there's people from small, beautiful museums like the New Bedford Whaling Museum, which is one of my new favorite museums in the world. It was very, very um, just inspiring, incredibly inspiring. Because as you know, usually when we talk to people, we seem to be the one with the crazy idea and uh, have to constantly push forward and push harder and put value to our idea and make sure that everybody believes we can pull it through and just always work a little harder. And there you are surrounded by people who experience the same thing, mostly 80% uh, women and who are equally um, innovative as you hope to be. And so it's super, super interesting to sit for hours and discuss ideas that seem so crazy to other people, but so normal to you and your peers. And that's a wonderful experience. Wow, that sounds refreshing. <laughs> yeah, it is. It actually Amazing. is. Yeah. yeah, I'm sure you thrived in that environment rather than felt kind of stunted. So that's that's amazing. That's good for you. Yeah. God, while everyone else was sitting on their sofa drinking beer, you're getting a degree from Harvard. I mean, this, I applaud you. <laughs> uh, thank you. Thank you so much. It was certainly challenging. It is a lot of work, but it was uh, one of the things I always wanted to do because, as you know, most of uh, the people we work with and our peers do not come from academic backgrounds. And I've built many a museum now, almost two, and I've created a lot of things. But still, everywhere you go in the traditional art world, you hear the question, what have you studied? Where have you studied? Who have you studied with? And what have you published? And it seems to me it was time that I was put this argument to rest completely and utterly forever to rest that only people who have studied are capable of building museums, change cultural um, identities and things, how we approach uh, cultural curation in general. And so I said to myself, I get this under my belt. And then I just really, there's no more arguments um, about why I or others like me cannot do what people who have academic degrees, you know, uh, can do, yeah. apparently. I mean, yeah, it's, it's kind of... Uh... Yeah, it's frustrating to hear that, that, you know, even with your portfolio of building two museums, which I'd like to talk about, you know, you're still up against that kind of um, people questioning if, you know, you have enough education or, you know, if you're the proper person to do the job. So it's, yeah, it's, well, at least now you've done it, the argument can be put to rest, like you said. So let's talk a little bit about your career, which is absolutely extensive. Um I mean, I've been following your career since I was about 17 years old. So it's, you know, been amazing to watch you flourish and go from running, you know, Strict Nine Gallery to taking over the art world. Um, can you lead us a little bit through your career from start to finish? Just um, a summary of, you know, how you got to where you are today? Sure. I, I come from the community, as you do. Um, I first got in touch with art merely through my friends who were all skateboarders, punk rockers, musicians, um, tattoo artists. And uh, once I had moved to New York, I was working for Wilhelmina Models and I was starting a division that was called the Creative Division. 
And in that creative division, I was representing people who were tattooed or looked very different for film, music, uh, music videos, and what have you not. And through this, I delve even deeper in uh, the New York community of artists and realizing that um, most of the people I worked with were people that did not have uh, schooled backgrounds or did not graduate from any universities, but were either self-taught or come from a completely different background. Um, I wondered why these people do not have galleries. Um, and all the artists that I talked to, and this is something I do very, very extensively and always, I talk to artists. Um, and listen, 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 told me that uh, it was very hard to get into a gallery unless you had already a very good portfolio, but you cannot get a good portfolio unless you are with a good gallery. So <laughs> I decided, okay, I'm going to open a little garage gallery. And I did that in Brooklyn and then later in Hell's Kitchen. And that was my first gallery. And it was very successful. All of a sudden we, we were, you know, selling art with people who never had a gallery before. And I was following in the footsteps and very inspired by Billy Shire, who was running um, uh, La Luz de Jesus at the time, mm -hmm. the lowbrow movement. And Billy was always a great inspiration to me. And then I got asked from all my friends in Europe, well, can we show in New York? And I was like, oh, I can't afford it, but you can come over if you can pay for the flight crash in my house and then we'll do something with the space. And so we did this a couple of times, very successful, showing European artists here. And then my American friends were like, well, why don't we show in Berlin? So I opened a second gallery in Berlin. And then after that, in the same with the same circumstances, another gallery in London. I ran these galleries for 15 years quite successfully. We participated in pretty much any art fair that there was at the time that would accept, accept the segment. Mm. And uh, during my time, I was asked then to become the director of an art fair in Cologne, a very successful German art fair, very big one. And I did that for five years and I implemented a new segment there by restructuring the way the payment was done. So if a large gallery that makes millions of dollars can afford 800 square meter, $800 or 800 euros per square meter, um, most young galleries can't afford that. So even if they show brilliant work, they will never be able to go in there and take that risk. So I uh, came up with the concept that we had a young segment within the big art fair, also avoiding this horrible um, idea of satellite fairs all the time, but literally had young talents inside the big art fair. And the art fair, the big galleries would participate in paying for these young galleries so that their initial fee for a booth was reduced to like $40 a square meter, if that. Um, and that was run for five years very successfully. The fair later got bought by Art Basel, by the MCH group. And during that time, I realized even more, I don't want to say what was wrong, but like shortcomings that I experienced for gallerists, for curators and for artists. Um, when it came to breaking into the traditional art market, breaking into collection, being invited to certain events, it's this, this, this huge difference in class in the art world. And so I started writing the concept for Urban Nation because everybody, I, everybody, wherever I went was like, in what collection is this artist that you're proposing for me to purchase? Because I was managing large collections for banks and investment groups. And I was like, well, they are not in a museum, but they are phenomenal artists and they will have a stellar career. And I remember at the time people didn't know about cause and they didn't know about 
uh, Banksy. This is just this had just come to pass at Outsiders in London. Like it, it wasn't even there yet. Yeah, and nobody wanted to get into it because they didn't trust that there was enough academic background. It wasn't in the big collection. It wasn't in a museum. And so I was like, you know what? That's it. We're building a museum and I'm going to build a museum that has everything. So whoever is shown in this museum automatically comes with a massive CV. So I wanted people to be shown in the museum, be collected by a museum, have an artist residency under their belt, have a biannual under their belt and have an extensive exchange program where they would travel worldwide into 57 countries is what I worked in during my time to never be able to have to face the fact that they were in no museum, they were in hadn't had a residency program. And so to cover everybody's back when it came to that. And this is how Urban Nation came to pass. It was a a lot of work with a lot of politics, a lot of city politicians, a lot of uh, roadblocks, a lot of blood, sweat and tear. But I think it was all worth it for me, at least. And I think also for the community. And within this museum program, I was also curating the curator. I was helping young, inexperienced people like Brooklyn Street Art that had not curated um, before they met me to get their you know, feet wet and start curating and start getting into curating big shows. What curator can say that their first show is in a museum? Yeah, I mean, what you've done with Urban Nation is beyond impressive. And um, anyone listening definitely needs to take a trip to Berlin to see it in, in the flesh because, you know, it's just, it was revolutionary. And it's, you know, it's game changing what you've done for the for, for the history of, of this movement of new contemporary and urban art. So I think the whole scene um, should send you thank you flowers uh, for what, for what oh. you've done, <laughs> really, you know, and so many people owe so much to that work that you've put in because I can't even imagine the amount of work it took to build that museum. I was really, really quite shocked. And I think everyone was quite shocked when you made the announcement in 2019 that you were leaving Urban Nation. And of course, mm -hmm. You did it in such style and flair with the uh, ape, uh, you know, the talking ape live on stage with you. It was just a phenomenal experience. Um, and, you know, and you you announced it in, in that incredible speech where everyone had their jaw on the floor that you were leaving and that you were going to create another museum. So, so that's how you've gone back to New York. Is that right? To create a new museum in New York City? That is correct. Um, the reason why I left with my wonderful mechatronic friend, the gorilla, um, which is, that was an amazing um, experience for myself, was because I've built Urban Nation and I gave it everything and I handed it over to the community, the curators, the people who so badly wanted it. And I was like, my work is done. And there was nothing else for me to do but to continue to curate walls and to continue to do the same thing I had done. But you know me, that is not me. So while I was doing um, all these projects in Urban Nation and all this, this experience with building a museum, with fundraising, with starting a foundation, with being part of a foundation and board meetings and all of that, I started writing yet another concept for how I could make those processes better, more acceptable, and most of all, younger and more innovative. While I was doing the museum, I realized that these incredible gaps that I was so, you know, that I was fighting against between the traditional and the 
um, counterculture movement or the graffiti lowbrow, what ha whatever name you want to give it, urban contemporary art movement, I realized that even within the community, there were even bigger gaps on both sides. Um, if somebody was an illustrator, uh, why were they not really accepted in the street art world? And there was a lot of things that I realized also how bored members and people from, from politics cannot understand what it is that we're doing. Uh, cultural ministers do not think that this is art because it is ephemeral and only ephemeral. And the consistent denial that street artists and urban contemporary artists are not only working on walls. These people have phenomenal work on canvas, on paper. I have an, an amazing collection of works on paper. I mean, unbelievable. But yet these works of paper would never make it into the collection of the Deutsche Bank, which only collects work on paper because again they don't understand that this is also part of the work of an urban contemporary artist that they choose mm. to work on paper on canvas in the studio and outside so i was this isn't a process that happened um, overnight that i wanted to leave urban nation i prepared this very carefully because i said to myself proof of concept will be that I build something for the community and I'm going to give it to the community. And they're either going to eradicate me, my name, my work, and whatever the community stands for completely out of it and give in and turn it again into something that is acceptable or there will be a leader found um, that will continue to push this forward with the vision that all of us had. Because it wasn't only my vision, it was the vision of every single person I spoke to, every artist and every curator. Al mm. was just the, the facilitator of our ideas. So I needed to go for A, proof of concept, and B, to develop further, to see what this museum of the 21st century and beyond could be with the rise of digital, with the rise of um, you know art becoming again, part of artivism, of activism, uh, being more than ever present, how to preserve this work now that it's about to, you know, in many, many ways, kill itself uh, because it's oversaturated, because it got picked up too fast. It's, it's a natural wave that happens to every movement. But out of this, what is the next step? And so two years before my leaving, I got an offer to develop something for New York City. And uh, I carefully considered my options and I took it because this was not a singular opportunity. This was a, an opportunity that came with several opportunities. Amazing. And so how has that project kind of come to play now with, I mean, I can imagine with um, the pandemic, have, have things stalled or have you been able to actually push forward and um, pursue the kind of timeline that you must have originally had? We like the timeline we originally have, we cannot pursue. This was not, it was not a part of it because it had something to do with purchasing buildings and also purchasing, um, you know, the, the, the license and then starting the construction work. And that was all halted, but that does not hold concept work. Concept work is never halted. And so my time was wisely spent in developing as I said, with Harvard, my concept even deeper and also more broad. So we are focusing on uh, starting the museum as I did it with Urban Nation from the outside in. So we will start different projects that will ultimately lead into the building in New York once the entire build is completed. But we're talking about, like Urban Nation, a couple more years. Yeah, yeah, of course. These things... Uh 
take a long time to build, don't they? Um, so can you talk us through a little bit the work that you're doing as a curator? I mean, I think the, the term curator sometimes doesn't do justice for the amount of things that, and hats that you wear. So can you just talk us through a little bit, for example, how do you start a massive project like this or any exhibition? What is your process creatively to form a concept? Um, where do you get your inspiration from? What are kind of the stages of curation that you go through? Well, I think, first of all, I agree with you. I think being a or being called a curator is just part of what I do. I don't think I'm a curator. I am also a curator amongst many other things. And I think every curator should be prepared to be that. There has been a time of star curators that would just come in, bring an artist, bring some fancy people, and that was it. But I think that has changed and certainly has changed in our genre and the one that you and I prefer to work with and in. I think curating, as we know, the word comes from curare, from the Latin word of caring for something. So I deeply care. I deeply care for art. That's the first step. I deeply care for art and I deeply care for bringing art to the world, to the viewer and preferably to those who would not necessarily be exposed to it in the first place. That's my general, um, <laughs> that's my, my, my love. Art is my love has always been my love. I've, I've collected art from when I was very, very young by the means of buying comic books and framing them because I love the covers so much and all of those things. If I start a project, the idea is, comes mostly from, it's inside my head. It comes from me being inspired by something I see that somebody has created and hoping to be able with what I have to offer, elevate it even further. So sometimes I see something in an artist's studio and I think this is phenomenal, but why isn't it bigger? Why isn't it on a building? Why doesn't it float in a lake, float in the sky? Why isn't it? So I'm always asking why, why can't we do this? Why can't we do that? How far can we push a technique? How far can we push a concept of an exhibition? How far can we push a space? As you know, with Urban Nation, I was showing work on the ceiling deliberately and on the floor and in vitrines and projected and painted onto the walls and on canvas. I try to get familiar with every medium and see how far we can push the medium, as well as how far can we push the canvas. Does the canvas have to be, you know, paper, linen, wood, metal, or can it be the streets or even more? Can it be the sky? Can it be the planet Earth for all I care? How far can I push everything? And then I just dream about how far I want to go and question all the roadblocks in my way of why I can do it. And then I form a concept. And I try to form my concepts always around the experience for the creative, the experience for the viewer, the experience for the neighborhood, the experience for all the entities involved that pay for making the experience possible, as well as for the, the archive. What is it that you leave behind? What is it that you've created? What emotion or positive residue can you leave on people's souls, on their minds, on their hearts, on this planet? And this is how I approach. This is my first step. And they take usually quite a while. And when they formed, the asking of the artist to participate is 
far, far, far away from what's actually happening. The next steps is um, feasibility studies, pro and cons. What is your big idea? What is actually the core of your idea? You write down all your entities. You become a producer. You start to think of all the entities that you need to convince to work with you. Then you need to make them work with each other. So you need to select careful who you work with. And I've learned this in 25 years. This is one of the most important things. Pick very wisely who you work with. Then you need to make sure that every bit of experience is also an enhancing experience from every single entity involved. Meaning if you hire a person for scaffolding, the scaffolding needs to get something out of the project without harming the project's integrity of not using it as a commercial advertising project. But what is the scaffolder getting out of it? What is the building owner getting out of it? What is the artist getting out of it? What is the foundation getting out of it? What is whoever every single person is, is getting out of it. That's the production work, the feasibility study. Does the work economically make sense to what you get out of it? What's the tangibility? What is, what is the expectations? Is it the expectation to have a lot of visitors? Is the expectation to push for a brand, for a magazine, for a message, for a person? Is the expectation to make a lot of money? And all these things have to be compiled in your feasibility study. And at the end, under this big red marker, you hopefully come to the conclusion that nobody on this planet can live without the project and you're just going to have to do it. And that's that. <laughs> and that's, that's going to be my, that's my, my first steps. Then you are a producer. Then it's all about logistics, organizing yeah. logistics. And because I see a curator as somebody who cares, you should care about every single thing from shipping to receiving to hospitality management to where does the artist sleep? What does he eat? What does the audience expect? When do they come? Does everybody feel comfortable? So you're pretty much considering yourself the hostess of everyone involved. And everyone can expect for you to give your best. And you are the last one to go to sleep. And you are the first one to go up. And if something goes wrong, it is and will always be your fault and your responsibility. Even if it's not, but it will be. And you make it that way so that you learn and grow and grow. And then you start your projects. And you just work really, 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 really hard. Yeah, I think that's the key learning from what you've just said. It's going to be a lot of hard work, isn't it? And I really liked what you said about, you know, the initial stages of idea generation, where it's about questioning everything, uh, questioning your own ideas, questioning what's needed by the visitor, the viewer, the creative, um, and building out, an inc I mean, essentially you're making, you're designing the puzzle, you're cutting the puzzle up, and then you got to go out and find all the puzzle pieces as well and then put the puzzle back together again so it's just a uh, uh, yeah i think it's an incredible task do you feel like it's a huge responsibility to carry this role as a curator yes. and producer yeah yes a hundred percent i think if you take it lightly if you think it's just an easy thing um you're gravely mistaken um you don't just become a curator overnight i think it's a massive responsibility um Depends if your my goal is to produce things that are um, have longevity, that have impact, that remain, that echo, that give you and the viewer something to take home. You know, every entity takes something home and remembers and hopefully learns from it or grows from it or hates it for all I care. Have an emotion, get involved and get 
get somehow something out of this project. And you can feel if somebody puts an effort into every single thing. And if you don't, if you just think, oh, I'll get an artist with a big name and I get a chunk of money and I'll just do it, it'll be exactly that. It'll come and go. It'll be there yeah. and it'll be gone. And there is no attachment. And if you manage to lead your teams, run your crew, deal with your artists and everything you do in a way that you form attachments to the project, not to you, to the project, to the core of what you're creating, then you actually have excelled. Then you have managed to um, build something that will last and that is a little artwork in itself. Because yeah. creating all those things, I think curators are artists as well. I think producers are artists. Without a producer, there wouldn't be a... Like, the one thing I always hear from artists is, oh my God, it was a great building, great wall, but the whole thing was like... I didn't know where to sleep. I didn't have a place to, you know, eat something or whatever. It's always the production that people remember. People remember always what they ate, where they slept and if they were cared for. And that is your responsibility. And if you fail that, it could very well be that all the people remember is that the food was shitty and they didn't have a place to sleep and they were not cared for. If you go to visit a friend of yours and you come in there and they've given you a room and there's a bed and you have a water by the side of your bed and they've given you like the, you are free, free, feel free to use whatever is in the refrigerator and all of this, you're happy. You want to stay there again. But if it's just a careless like, come, here's money, do your thing and thank you. I think you failed the mission of a curator. Well, it always goes back to the human experience, doesn't it? Um, you exactly. know, it doesn't need to be super flashy and, no. you know, very entertaining. It is down to this very subtle details, isn't it? Um, it is down yeah. to the caring. I'm t I can only emphasize this again. I have done projects that look like they cost millions of dollars. And I was lucky and fortunate enough to do them with my friends for a fraction of this. We shared houses, we cooked for each other, we created murals, everybody helped each other, everybody was there for each other. If there wasn't enough money, we figured out another way to do it. And that was the inspiring beginnings of it all. That was the wonderful, amazing beginnings of it all. Because once you have three, four, five million to throw at a project, the trick becomes to still treat it like you had nothing. Because yeah. that is the only way how you create a community and the feeling of achieving something together. Otherwise, it becomes an exchange of merchandise. It becomes a, a, an economical exchange, becomes a trade um, of monetary you know, value. And I am not into that at all. I'd rather have people stay at my couch and cook dinner for them and talk to them and spend time with them and get to know them. So I really know what they need. So when we go out in the street, I can deliver because I know exactly what the person likes, what they don't like, what they want. And I like to do that with everybody I work with. Yeah, I mean, that's a huge, huge lesson you just passed on. Um, and very, you know, one I definitely agree with completely. I feel like the most rewarding projects have, have always the ones where the team was very strong, the community was very strong, um, and the people that attended the exhibition or participated also felt embedded and part of the community, not separate to it as just a viewer. So yeah, I think it's essential. What is, you know, that's a huge lesson. What's 
What has been one of the biggest challenges is, I know there's probably many, you know, I always think about the challenges I've faced in my career. And I, I find that a lot of them have been with my own way of thinking and not being uh, evolved enough as a curator, not having enough experience. So making kind of wrong decisions or trusting, not trusting my gut. Uh, rather than external challenges, I find a lot of the challenges I've faced have been just internal issues or, or learnings. What, what, what have you felt has been one of the biggest challenges that might have also empowered you to do better over your career? Well, first of all, I don't think um, doubting yourself or making a mistake is, is anything that uh, is, is bad. I think it's wonderful. I think the more you struggle and the more you dare to struggle and the more you question yourself and the more you, you go home and you think, I didn't do it right, it wasn't right, something isn't right, the better you will become. At bottom line, the more you think, think back without judging yourself so harshly, you know, don't judge yourself harshly, just think back. Think, what is that one thing that is sitting inside your chest that makes you feel like something isn't right? It's just something missing, something isn't right in the project or whatever. Those things are good things. If you don't have them, then I would be concerned. That's number one. I think one of the biggest challenges for me is to make people understand what the end result of the project intention is. Because sometimes I see things so clearly and I can look in the future to kind of predict the outcome of something. I know if I do this, then this will happen, they will come, this will be seen, and that will happen after it. And I don't think a lot of people can follow that uh, thought process, because it is quite abstract. But I am so long in my life in the world of just adventures and taking chances and doing things that I've become quite um, comfortable within uncertainty. So comfortable so that I'm willing to take uh, risks and I'm willing to take the failures and I'm not scared of them. And that, that gives me a lot of strength and that gives me um, in many ways a lot of foresight due to my experience. And I think it's very hard to tell someone, I, I believe, like remember the time when I told you I was going to build a museum. I think 80% of all the people that I told this to, what I had in mind were like, yep, okay, cuckoo. Right. Yeah, you do that. You do that. You know, I think that was the overall reaction. And I think it happens a lot of times when I say, listen, if we do this, give it another year or two, this will happen. And a lot of times people are like, no, I don't think so. I don't think so. And I, I predicted it with the NFT. I predicted it with the digital art. I predicted it with smart contracts. And now we're on the rise in the middle of it. And I have a lot of people who followed my advice, who got on board very early. Remember Beeple Crap? The yeah. guy who just sold everything for what, like 70 million um, yeah. Ethereum? Yeah. Or was it dollars? I don't remember 60, correctly. 69, $69 million. $69 yeah. million. Yeah. Yes, that's correct. So remember when you were at the biannual? Of course. Remember who did the entranceways? That was him. So I showed all the projection in the entryway. All the robotic films that we yeah. had when you walk in, that was people. So we already showed that work. So sometimes I think it's hard. And the biggest challenge is when you are a visionary thinker or a dreamer or a little bit crazy uh, to tell people that what you want to do actually makes sense and is quite structured and not at all crazy. Yeah. I mean, so just getting that trust. But do you find that still now, even with the incredible portfolio behind you, with producing a museum and now developing another one, you still find that you have to convince people of your vision? 
I think that as I grow, my visions grow. So I don't have to convince them of my capabilities anymore. That is not something I have to do anymore. I don't have to fight for getting paid or fight for having someone to listen to me or sit down with me and have or have an open door with a big museum. I don't have to fight that for that anymore. But if you grow and you are a visionary and you know yourself how that feels as I watch you grow, it is your ideas go bigger. And although I have all this work in my portfolio, I still, if I want to tell someone I'm going to paint a flag that will end up on the Mars, that is yeah. something that I still have to convince people. And yeah. most likely someone who's in a company will listen, listens to this, will take the idea and run with it, which is also great, you know? Yeah. So you constantly walk a balance between what ideas do I put out there that are too crazy or what ideas do I put out there to what extent before they get picked up by someone else? And these are additional challenges. This is, is off topic, another challenge as a curator, you know, the bigger the idea, you still have to do some convincing, but in a different way, in a different way, that's for sure. So how do you deal with this thing that I've always noticed as, as an event producer and curator that I've always felt like I'm only as good as my last project, you know, I always need to impress myself and do bigger or maybe not bigger, but better. How, how do you work with that? Is that something that you're constantly trying to, you can't really just do something that you've done before. You're always trying to push the boundaries and push further. And once you're Yashi Young, how do you continue to do better? <laughs> you know, what, what, what I, kind of inspires you to continue to, to push forward? Human behavior inspires me because I'm constantly in awe that I think I know something and then I turn around and I'm so completely wrong. I am just inspired by the fact you can take nothing for granted. Nothing, not one thing. Um, not in life, not in art, nothing. You, you, there's nothing, nothing, nothing you can take for granted. And if I look at my last projects, I always learn from whatever I do. And I agree with you, my projects are not always um, big but they always teach me something and they're forward. So I had no opportunity, obviously, because of uh, COVID to do anything but do Harvard and write my concept for the new museum and write my concept for the Middle East. And I yet took a five by five meter wall in Munich that I dedicated to five artists who could easily travel to Munich during the pandemic and do this wall. It is just a tiny wall. It doesn't pay well, but it is a place to play and to try out. And I've done one of the best NFTs and one of the best walls in my career, probably with Bon Trulov mm -hmm. from Leipzig there. Um, and I'm about to do a groundbreaking new wall there with uh, Digital Does, uh, with Does. And that's not big. That's five by five meters. But what goes on those five by five meters is groundbreaking, new, and very difficult to execute. So I'm always trying to create little labs, little labs for me to do something, little project, like the project I'm doing in the Swiss Alps right now with Vision. It's not a big project, but it's certainly groundbreaking. It's certainly different due to the altitude, due to the fabric, the material of what we're planning on doing. So I always try to create labs that let me also freely experiment and fail without going public with it completely. Wow, that's really great advice, actually. 
to just start with what you can really as well, right? And start with what you have exactly. in front of you. Yeah. It, I think that's kind of where you learn, yeah, like most freely, but that's where you learn a lot as a young curator or starting projects or even, you know, an experienced curator, curator like yourself. It's starting with things that are small and in front of you. Because some of these big things I find, um, it's one of the big questions, you know, with a lot of uh, young artists and young curators, just like you've said, you know, how do you get into the big galleries? How do you get into a museum? And how can I start curating for an art fair? And it's just really difficult to say, okay, these are the steps that you need to take. My advice is always start with what you have. Um, build up experience with your own network and your community. And it sounds like that's really how you started your career as well. It's really starting with what was in front of you, your friends, the people that you knew, and even a five by five meter wall can make a huge impact. So, it yeah. has a huge impact. You can you can look it up uh, online. It's one of the most impactful, um, you know, social media posts. So it's one of the most talked about walls um, in, in any way you look at, and it's just five by five meters. And also, you know, I come from a background, I always wanted to run a magazine. That was my, my biggest wish was to run a magazine. So I, we did zines. For every show that I did at Strict Night, and that was about 350 curated shows. I don't know if you remember this, but for every single show, we had a limited edition zine that I made. It was copies of images, text, things related to the show, to the process. They were done on an A4 paper, folded four times, then clipped together, cut and paper clipped together, um, stapled together actually, and had a cover that was either handmade by the artist that was there to during the show or before. And these were precious little things. They were always different. Just the formats is the same. And I wonder if there's somebody out there who has those 300 because they are worth so much money right now. Every show came with a tiny little getaway giveaway. That was an original piece of work or something that we've created by hand. It was tiny. It was homemade. We sat on the floor of my apartment and we stapled those zines together. And it was the funnest time ever. And this zine and all those zines I kept and I had taken them with me to New York and I met someone who was the publisher of a magazine and I showed them those scenes and that's how I got my job to be uh, editor in chief in a tattoo magazine. And hmm. that was the biggest dream. And because I did that, I became the editor in chief for tear magazine. Tear Magazine was a underground independent art magazine, which I ran for six issues before, you know, the horrible situation here happened with 9-11 and everything. You know, it was, it was something that we did. We did this by hand. And if you want to curate a show with your friends, try it at your home. I mean, I had, I had shows developed in my home or in an artist's studio where we would put together things, what could this look like? And if we put this paper here and we made little diorama miniatures, try it out, put your hands on because just the idea isn't good enough. Absolutely. And it doesn't have to be expensive. Always remember that not everything has to be expensive. Right now, the idea that everything you do as a young curator, you need to get paid 20, 30, 40 grand, that will never happen. That will never happen. Look up the salary of a curator in a state museum. That yeah. is minuscule to yeah. what people who curate in the street art world or curate in, in, in for, for corporations or big street art festivals expect to get. 
that is not a reality that is happening and all the better for you if you can get it but it's not a reality yeah so i mean this is definitely a career for the passionate the workaholics and the ones that are happy to be underpaid a hundred percent no vacation no vacation no time for anything else but that it has to be your first love you will be constantly underpaid probably always tired and uh, hopefully so inspired by what you do that you couldn't care less about that. Yeah, and I think the other thing that you mentioned, which I've definitely felt in my career is, whatever goes wrong, it's your fault. <laughs> whatever goes wrong, it's your fault. What, I mean, and, and I seriously, this is whatever. It doesn't matter what it is, be prepared. And even if you never heard the name or had that cookie that tasted badly, you, it's gonna be your fault. 100 yeah. percent and yeah. learn how learn how to deal with it gracefully i consider myself a firefighter what i do is put out fires you know i put out fires all around me all the time consistently firefighter you're like you're pretty much somebody who's called in a, as a crisis manager that's your job and whether it's a big crisis or a small crisis or my hotel room doesn't it's not nice i need another hotel room and uh, why isn't this there and how can I get there and the politician is coming and you have a state visit and you have to have a police pre-inspection and there needs to be, I mean, all of that, you are a crisis manager and then just remain calm and manage the crisis and you'll be so successful if you can remain calm. Never, ever take anything personal. I wish I would have listened to this podcast about 10 years ago, Yasha. <laughs> Uh, I wish I would have listened to somebody who tell me what I say now. I sound so wise. It has nothing to do with wisdom or knowledge. It's hardcore experience. It's just experience. I have made so many mistakes. I've been so deeply disappointed along the way. I've regretted so many things. But thankfully, I'm a character who says, uh-huh, okay, I take note. Let me make it different. Let me make it better. And People have always asked me, everybody always asks me, so what do you say to your biggest opponents? And what do you say to the people who judge you harshly or who criticize you? And I can only tell you that revenge is a dish best served cold, huh. is true. And revenge in general is unnecessary because the biggest, if you want to call it revenge, if you even want to use that word, is you just be you do you and be unstoppable because there's only one you only one you has the ideas only one you is the original only one you can pull it through the way you do it you learn you take note and you continue because everything and anything you encounter most likely is just people who want you to not continue because you're good at what you're doing and you actually implement change and change is not pretty and it's not easy and it's always easier to see someone you know, not make it, then applaud someone who actually made it and support another person. Mm -hmm. And I think if you learn that you make a close network of people that support you and you support them equally, and that you have, you know, always a good group of people, a good team around you that you can trust, that will go with you through failure and success, that's half of the rent. I mean, I think that's a beautiful, beautiful advice. Uh, you know, we're very honored to listen to you and Thank you so much for that, because I needed to hear that again after a year of lockdown. Reminded of how individual we are and how much power we have um, once we really put our mind 
to our work. And I think that's a beautiful place to leave it. So thank you so much, Yasha. Uh, thank you so much for your time and for all the advice you've offered myself during this lovely therapy session um, and to <laughs> all of our listeners as well. I really appreciate it. And I, you know what? A huge thank you from the scene and from the art world that I love so much. You know, I've watched you just kind of position it in such a different place where it was 10, 15 years ago. And, you know, now it's respected and it's part of museums and collections. And, you know, we do owe a big, a big, a, a lot of that to you and the work that you've done continuously. So um, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. And I just want to say thank you so much for having me in this beautiful podcast. Good luck with all your projects and what you're doing. I know we'll cross paths again very, very soon and work together. I just think the most important thing is to also remember I am nothing without the artist. I'm nothing without the creative. I'm nothing without the viewer. And neither is anyone else who puts something on. So always remember, be humble, be kind. Try to stay a little crazy and definitely continue to dream. Amazing. Thank you, Yasha. Thank you. Take care. To find out more about Food FM and our content, go to foodfmradio.com. If you have enjoyed our discussion, show your support by following us on Instagram at monikerartfair, or if you can spare a moment, please leave a five-star review or positive rating. Thank you so much for joining us. See you next time here at Curators of Culture.